Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And a couple weeks ago, I had a really uh, great chance to interview a dear friend and a incredible musician, Francis Lacresto. And was talking about a gig that he did um, on Halloween at a um, local eatery in, in Brooklyn, and he mentioned that he was playing with Robin McMillan, a great drummer, great cat, and then he mentioned this other cat who, um, it didn't ring familiar in my ears, but that's not a surprise because I'm kind of caught in my own little bubble, but I, um, as soon as I started to transcribe the 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 interview, I said, you know, I got to reach out to this cat because anybody that Francis plays with um, is pretty much a head cat. And so I, I looked this cat up and I'm like, holy cow, this is exactly what I have been looking for for the last 10 years amongst my peer group at 42 years old. This is a cat who um, has taken State Department tours, much like Mike Maynary did with Buddy Rich and, and, uh, and, and Ernie Watts did with Oliver Nelson going to the timeless lands of of uh, Southeast Asia <clears throat> in the Middle East, and uh, he is obsessed with organic creation uh, in the same way that the masters of this music uh, were. Um, he grew up in Berkeley, which is uh, ensconced with uh, sort of hippies or neo-hippies or, uh, you know, people that are quite honestly skiffle players, even though there was quite a dynamic scene there at one time. But when I look at someone like my guest, I realize that um, I guess maybe in some ways uh, I wish there were more of him and, and her in this world um, to produce authentic music, to be singular, and to break through the morass of mediocrity that we are awash in today. Noah, Noah Garabedian, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks a lot for having me, and thank you for those sweet words. Appreciate it. Well, man, I got to tell you, bro, I am, I was like, you know, I'm going to check this cat out. And I, I was like reading your bio and I, I mean, literally I almost like, I mean, like my eyes were rolling into the back of my head because I didn't know that somebody could live a life like this. Uh, granted pre COVID, but still, I mean, do you recognize, when did you recognize that you were a conduit for the music coming through you from the heavens? Uh, that's a that's a pretty heavy question, but um, I guess I could answer that maybe a more uh, more simplified version of that. Go ahead, yeah, I whatever realized. comes to mind, yeah. <laughs> when did I realize uh, that I wanted to be a musician or I enjoyed playing music? Is that kind of... Well, you know, more to the point, getting... like, I mean, I've done a couple interviews with Miroslav Vitruis, and he talked about when he was in Weather Report... Um, the original version, Al Muzon, Zawino, Shorter, and um, and him, and he said that you know with you know when when you get your ego out of the way, and you play basically you you allow yourself to be a conduit of information coming through you from the heavens, so you can play what I would call spiritual jazz or spiritual music. And he said that Zawino, um, sometimes we would get very free you know, with Wayne and, 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 and Zawino will get a little insecure and he'd want to bring it back to a, a form, more form. So, you know, you say what you want about Vitruis. Uh, he, he, he was sort of basically saying Zawino was too insecure. 
but the point is that like in order to play the music that I love and that apparently you have been doing with all these insane cats, you have to get out of the way of your ego and then allow the information to come through you. So it's not even about like when you wanted to be a musician because there are plenty of cats that want to do that and they have a lot of great facility and shops, but they, you know, it's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so I just wonder if you can talk about a time when you recognize that um, this was your gift, this was your superpower, and that when you really got out of your own way, you were a con- you were a conduit for the music coming through you from the heavens. Sure. Um, well, that's that's definitely a great question. Um, I think for one, um, the example you brought up of Weather Report and Miroslav and Wayne Shorter's relationship in that band. I think that's um, both of those guys I feel like are 100% in the music to serve the music and to, um, right. you know, do the music, uh, do the music justice, play it truthfully and be true to themselves. And, um, you know, I know that that sounds somewhat esoteric, but it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's true and easier said than done. Um, for me, something, something that really helped me kind of let go and, uh, you know, embrace the unknown of music and embrace the music itself, uh, was just playing with musicians who I grew into deep friendships with and musicians who I felt comfortable being around with. Um, and of course, playing with, you know, masters as well. You can't help but get lost in the music because they're, they're in the music as deeply. They bring you in there. Absolutely. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you... But, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, but I, I'd say that, um, you know, playing with people who I connect with on a personal level is really important to me. Yeah, well, because that creates um, trust, you know, and, and I just, I think, you know, from your earliest days, I mean, I, I just transcribed this interview um, with uh, uh, Barry Melton, who was uh, the fish in Country Joe and the Fish, which is an iconic Berkeley okay. band and, you know, far, far from a jazz group. But, you know, <laughs> what he said was, you know, the musicians, frankly, that he wants to play with are ones who recognize that they have to sacrifice for the whole, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that on a night when everybody is in the zone, that's when magic can occur. And I think he was spot on about it because at least my generation and younger, I mean, it's you've been playing with guys with huge, huge ears and they're serving the music, but um, somewhere along the line, um, the memo got a little bit lost about what it really means to sacrifice for the whole and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit to younger cats I mean I know you you do a lot of mentoring and teaching but you know to me that is the essence of a band and I wonder how you try to get that across to kids today because a lot of cats even before COVID um, a tremendous technique tremendous facility 
but they wind up playing a lot by themselves and they don't really have that experience on the bandstand and as a result when they become leaders before they're really they should be leaders it turns out that they don't have that acumen they don't have that those their ears are not big enough and so i just wonder mm. if you can talk a little bit about you know i mean you're, you can personalize it when you if you believe in that theory that the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and that it's important to sacrifice for the greater good of the whole because ultimately that's going to that's going to create new musical vocabulary yeah absolutely well one thing that really comes to mind immediately is getting a chance um to play with any of the master musicians um regardless of age um but especially the older ones i guess um you notice right away that they are they are in it to make the entire band sound good and they can make anybody sound good um and i think that you see that um especially let's see and maybe um well, for a jazz reference, I think somebody like Joe Lovano is a good example because he has so many different bands and plays with so many different people. And, you know, especially here in New York, he he was playing a ton and he always seemed to use a variety of bands and everyone sounded great. <laughs> and he always sounded, sounded like himself. Wow. But the band just r rose to his, you know, to his level. And so I think that it's important. Oh, how's my soul going? Oh, I like that thing that I played. But really what we should be thinking about is how's the band sounding? How can I help my brothers and sisters in the band, you know, rise up and make this sound better as a whole? How have you gone about it? I mean, Lovano is steeped in, you know, I mean, he did. Um, I mean, he, he really was mentored by 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 a lot of a lot of guys like Dr. Lonnie Smith, like just badass players. And so, I mean, can you talk about your own, especially with younger cats? I mean, you obviously are a link in the chain in the lineage of music. <clears throat> and I do come from the school of Duke Ellington. I mean, I believe it, it is all, all music. And then the subjective part is it's either good or bad. But, you know, like when you're working with younger cats and you show up at the gig and you don't really even know them personally that well – how do you get them to raise the level of their game? I mean, like, so that the band sounds good and that everybody is playing their ass off, but they're all, as a collective, they get it. Mm. Well, you know, that's a that's certainly a situation that I've been in countless times, especially <laughs> being a bass player. Yeah, yeah being a bass player. And um, I guess for one, uh, you know, it's important for me to show up, you know, with my ego in check. That's for sure. And even if I might be the oldest person in the band or the youngest person in the band, I'm I'm only human just like they are, you know, and I'm only as good as I'm only going to sound as good as the rest of them sound. So, um, you know, for me, I guess if I show up in a situation like you're mentioning, um, it's important for me to just be a nice person right off the bat and, you know, ask try to get to know the person in as little time as possible and then from the jump you know from downbeat uh just to try to connect i mean i guess i would say if i could put it in more kind of tangible 
terms for especially for musicians um one thing i try to do is connect with the drummer right away so Mm -hmm. you know that's uh because if the bass player and the drummer are sounding good then the whole band's gonna have a great time um yes so yeah i I look to connect with the drummer right away now you want now you're talking about it like in a verbal way right you just sort of rap with them or you know make them feel comfortable because they may be like sort of not in awe of you but just uh you know a little bit intimidated because they're getting on the bandstand so you make them feel more comfortable it's not like you have a lot of time to shed with them before the gig or they could be incredibly disappointed that I showed up. <laughs> um, I dig. No, because it looked like you said Lovano had. I mean, not that, not that, not that, not that Lovano. Not that you're in the backstage watching him, but you know he has all these bands. He sounds like himself, and the bands all sound good. And yeah. you're you're perceptive enough to. I'm just wondering, is it, you know because. The less is it the less said the better, but then if if the less said the better, then maybe people aren't as comfortable or relaxed. Um, so I'm just trying to get the idea of like how much nonverbal leadership um, goes into um, allowing the cats to, um, well as you know, basically allow the music to um, to transcend uh, you know the collective like basically when you put all the soul together if you're playing with a band with a lot of life force then the whole is definitely going to be greater than the sum of its parts but I just wonder like in the pre-production if that's the right word if mm-hmm. you know how you get how because I mean I, like I'm a, I'm a journalist and I'm a broadcaster so when I come to gigs and if I'm tight with the cats and I'm backstage you know I love just making them laugh and, and getting them sort of you know, off on a tangent or just getting them thinking about their history, making them feel, you know, amped up if they're in that frame of mind. But as a leader, I just wonder if, um, how much nonverbal leadership goes into, um, especially with, you know, with the drummer, uh, you know, sort of being the antecedent to a really hot gig. Right. Um, well, I suppose there are kind of two ways uh, <clears throat> to answer that question. And, um, you know, for starters, I mean, I I never really think of myself as a leader on the bandstand. But um, you know I why I say that? I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know you're a humble cat. I'm just saying, like, you this 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 um, this 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 pedigree is like, you know, uh, you know, Thelonious Monk. <laughs> John Coltrane right, National right. Jazz Scholarship, yeah. Thelonious, but these are like the heaviest names. And obviously, like, it's not just like you're not up there, like, freaking going off on like 40 minute bass solos, like wanking it. I mean, obviously, you got the memo. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm putting you on a pedestal, but at the same time, I also want people to recognize that people like Mac and Lacrasto and you, like, I look at you guys as the future of music. So, um, Maybe you don't look at yourself that way, but in your own mind, how do you try to, um, I don't know, get the whole collective off on a given night? Sure. Well, there's, you know, like I, like I was uh, saying, there's definitely like two ways to kind of answer that. And one is, yeah, there's definitely like the verbal communication. There's a lot that we can say just physically, you know, whether it's a smile or, you know, walking around frantically or walking around calmly, setting up, you know, 
nice and relaxed or setting up and being stressed and people on the bandstand can feed off of that energy immediately so if they're like oh Noah's stressed and he seems really high strung like he's angry (laughs) or whatever it is like that immediately sets a vibe on the bandstand so and then you know so it's I don't necessarily need to connect too much verbally I mean I like to joke around and have a good time of course especially when when I'm with my friends but you know when people I meet just be cool and respectful and friendly and humble to the people you meet on the bandstand and you know we're gonna have a good time and then uh but there's so much that can be said musically you know without um without really you know without just like talking about it before the gig like okay are you gonna play in four on this tune or are you gonna play in two on this tune you know it's more like um from the from the downbeat like how okay how is this drummer playing where is he feeling the bird sheep feeling feeling the beat um how can i how can i get into that pocket without feeling like well okay so i if i feel like a drummer is maybe dragging say how can i kind of push the tempo without making the drummer feeling like i'm bullying them you know what I, mean? I love it yeah how can totally, i yeah how can I get the band to, you know, groove super hard without looking the drummer dead in the eyes and being like, hey, you know, you're dragging, you're rocking. <laughs> and so there are little, uh, there are little musical techniques that I think bass players and drummers can both do to push or relax a band. And then there are also, you know, personal and physical techniques that we can do on the bandstand when we meet you know, when we meet new uh, new musicians that we're going to play with. <laughs> Dude, I, I, you are the, you're one of the cats, man. I mean, you know, I've had, I, I, I'll send you these interviews because you're going to be dying. But I mean, I, I, I've interviewed Reggie Workman, Steve Swallow, Chuck Israels. Chuck Israels was like playing with Pete Seeger. I think he was playing like just singing and playing guitar in 1950 on his porch. And then Nine years later, he was playing with Coltrane. And, you know, these guys were like omnivores when it came to music. I, I, I wonder about growing up in Berkeley, you know, would you say that you, I mean, would you say that you were a skiffle player at first uh, in the sense that you were self-taught? Um, I, I, I look at today's world, especially in the academy, and there's so much sort of for lack of a better word, sort of a, a wonkiness to it. Um, there's a lot of, it's very mental and it's not really like guttural or, or, you know, in the soul, so to speak. And I just wonder about how much of a street scholar you were. I mean, were you like playing, were you busking on the corner of, uh, in downtown Berkeley? Like, can you talk a little bit about your, your street scholar versus academic pedigree? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I was really fortunate to grow up when I did and where I did because um you know when I was coming up in Berkeley and in the Bay Area there was still um the older generation was still around there was a lot of fantastic um music being played some clubs that are no longer there some great you know local legends and masters who were there who were ready willing and able to teach to anybody who was ready to listen and um so there were, you soak up a lot of 
music just through osmosis, just by being around older musicians, uh, you know, hearing them play, of course, but also just kind of hanging around them. And uh, you can learn a lot from people, even if they're not playing their instrument and you just kind of sit around and listen. So I feel like um, I definitely was lucky in that sense to get uh, get exposed to some of that. Well, I mean, then, let's I mean, let's 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 break it down. I mean, we're talking Mark Levine, Rob Fisher, who was who's around and, and talk about the osmosis. I mean, who were the who were the 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 Titans that were 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 were, were, were cooking the groove in Berkeley? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, actually, that's interesting. You mentioned Rob Fisher, the bass player. Such a great weird? fucking dude, man. Yeah. No, I had a chance to see him at a Harris's Steakhouse, I think, and. I think with Pete Magadini, the dude played his ass off. I mean, it was unbelievable. Wow. And he played with Jader and those cats. But I figured, I'm like, you're cut from, I mean, that dude can play, dude. So, so I actually studied with Rob Fisher. He was my first teacher. Now that is, I see, you know, um, this is a divine thing. This is so freaking beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting because not many people know about him out here. And then, um, yeah. so I studied with him for about two years. And then I studied with a bass player named Glenn Richmond, who um, is originally from Philly, played in Larry Young's band for a long time. What? Um, I don't even know that guy. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's pretty under the radar, but he played, he was kind of the bass player in the 80s and 90s when um, a lot of musicians had moved to the Bay Area. So Bobby Hutcherson, Larry Young, and Joe Henderson, those guys were living in the Bay um, a pianist named Ed Kelly. Oh my God, dude! There. Are you? Oh wait, dude! Uh, wait, Ed Kelly, dude! Oh, dude! Paul Jackson yeah. from the Headhunters. He learned yes, exactly. all his bass lines from Ed Kelly's left hand, dude. They, this is back in the wow. day. Yeah, this is back in the day. He was playing. He, I mean, dude, the, he, Ed Kelly is my fa- dude. He used to play in North Beach at the, the Red Balloon. I mean, we're going back to the to the sixty. This is. Dude, I can't believe... You're telling me that you were on the bandstand with Ed Kelly? Well, so Ed used to host uh, jam sessions at his house every Sunday afternoon. So I would go... I played, you know, a little bit, but I was pretty young. I was probably like 12 or 13. And I, at that point, I was just playing electric bass. Um, But I would, you know, my dad would drop me off. and uh, Dude, this is unbelievable, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was, Holy it was cow, a pretty man. soulful, like, pretty soulful experience. I mean, can you remember? I mean, also, uh, yeah, go. And you know what I just wanted you to talk about is it, like with someone like Ed Kelly. Not that he, I mean, the guy could groove, but he also like he was playing with Pharaoh back in the '60s. Can you talk about like, if anything, what you learned about the spiritual qualities of or the the unquantifiable nature of music in general, that it's not just the notes on the page. Is there, is there a story that you can recall from, from him or any of these shaman cats? Cause I just, they're so vital. They're so overlooked. And quite frankly, a lot of them aren't even here anymore. So I just wonder about the unquantifiable nature of music. To me, it's the, it's the essence of, of, of the soul. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Jake. Um, one one guy I really want to mention, don't want to neglect uh, yeah. before I kind of go deeper in that, is a trumpet player named Khalil Shahid, who um, was in the Bay Area and ran, uh, you know, he ran this 
uh, organization called Oaktown Jazz Workshop. Beautiful. Um, and he was just such an important member of the community there. So I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, I don't, I can't honestly recall a moment when I was that young of being like, of feeling like, oh, there's like a spiritual side of <laughs> yeah, music. No, I did. But, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but like I was saying earlier, I definitely think there's an osmosis that goes on, um, you know, just being around people of that level, that age, who, you know, they created the music, honestly. You know, they and, did. Uh, they did. Being, and, you know, and they were around the other creators. So, you know, just being around them, you realize, like, oh, there's something else going on, but I don't really understand it. And so I feel like it honestly wasn't until gotten a little older, late teens, or gone to college and started you know been able to play with or just be around um and hear um older master musicians but you know there's gotta be a better way at least for me i'm not quite able to articulate it but music and spirituality i feel like it shouldn't be like there shouldn't be a discussion where we discuss A and B. It should just be one thing. You know I did. I mean? You, I mean, you just nailed. I mean, I remember. Um, I, I forget who I was. I don't know if you. He's left us now. There's this really unheralded guitar player in in New York called Ted Dunbar. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He was like, I mean, you know, he was all in his prestige sessions, very mercurial, he was like a numerologist, and he said, he said, church is on the bandstand. And I thought that that was basically right. the best way to um, – there's no dogma, especially if we, what we've been talking about here the last half hour. If, if all those things are aligned correctly, <clears throat> then, it's, then it's a divine thing. And I agree with you. It shouldn't be separated. Um, but yet there's so much information now, Noah. What do you say to cats? How, how, it's impossible to unplug. I don't care if you – I guess you could cut your cable and throw your iPhone away, but – how, how? I mean, we're, we're when I said being, when I opened the show and I said mediocrity, I meant that if you go onto YouTube, there's so much content and so much of it is very average. And so, in order to really be a detective in this time, you have to seek. How do you teach your? How do you get your students to to think for themselves so that? They at least at least you can put them on a path towards being a shepherd, and not a sheep. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that I notice in a lot of my students, and uh, you know, I don't I don't want to say I don't want to say like one thing I know about young kids. You know, I, I don't want to. You're not exactly an old. Like you're that. not a gray beard. No, I, I dig. I dig. Yeah, yeah, totally. But um, you know. I noticed that a lot of developing uh, musicians, they don't listen to, they don't listen to enough music and they also don't listen to themselves. And, um, and so I really try to get, I encourage young musicians uh, to record themselves practicing, record their, their gigs and listen to as much music as possible. And that means like, you know, kind of close, close listening so whether that's checking out an entire album and just focusing on 
you know, Paul Chambers and Philly Joe Jones, or it's listening back to your gig and checking out, you know, how you're comping behind the saxophone solo or something like that, like really intentional listening. And then, you know, listening to your own practice is super helpful. Even if it's, um, I've been filming my own practice sessions recently. I found it just, I can see where I physically carry tension when I'm playing. Mm. I can see, mm. you know, there, it opens up a whole new world. So I think that, um, in order to break through for a developing musician to break through the sort of, uh, mechanical or robotic side of music that is so prevalent in academia, um, you know, listen, to as much as you can and, and go into every listening session and every opportunity you have to learn and with open ears and you know when you see something that you immediately write off you know try to take a step back and think of something that you can learn from it take away a positive for every negative you know what I'm saying I love that I mean what do you mean that they don't listen to themselves they're just uh, that's because I feel like if they are not listening to if they're kind of bias and they they make judgments about music and they're not listening to enough music then chances are they're probably just wanking it uh you know potentially uh listening to themselves so you're talking about close listening and being somewhat critical of themselves or or recognizing where they need to sort of cultivate well yeah it's but again, I, I don't really want them to be too critical, like to get down on themselves. It's more like if 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 we're talking about, you know, you know, how does the audience feel, or how would the audience feel if they heard this jam session, or if this was on a recording, how would somebody feel if they listened to it while they're driving in their car? Right. And in turn, you know, what can you do to make it better, but not in a negative way? What can you do to make yourself better make the band better what did you learn from like a positive side of things you know every learning experience should be a positive not like an offer not a moment for you to beat yourself up or to talk shit about the excuse me talk talk poorly no, about the uh, piano players we're not we're not regulated by the fcc yeah no i did so okay. yeah no you're good <laughs> but um, yeah so it's more about objective honest uh, and 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 non-judgmental kind of uh, evaluation. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And you know, for every negative feeling you have, try to think of a positive. You know, really uh, just keep the collective in mind and think about the feeling of the music. How does it make you feel? How does it make the audience feel? And how's the drummer feeling when you're playing? You know. You know, I talked to. Um, I, I hope that's clear, <laughs> dude. You're. I mean, listen. The, 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 you've done. This is a stream of consciousness thing. So we're. You're doing. You're doing fantastic. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, the the late drummer in Dugu Chancellor, um, it was a dear friend, and um, he taught at USC um, in the latter portion of his career, and he talked about. A lot of musicians coming from overseas, so jazz is now really a world language. Um, and a lot of those cats come, and they come on scholarship, and they um, and they play, uh, and they're very gifted, and they're amazing. And they, but they, they have a tendency, like you were saying, to have a, not a 
elitist might be the wrong word, but, you know, sort of a, a high-end view of themselves. So they wind up jamming with themselves. And Ndugu was like, I don't see them incorporating enough of, like, going out, going out and playing with the cats um, who have rubber bands on their saxophones. You know, like the blues players or the or the street scholars more that that you wind up in this sort of that jazz has become kind of a high, especially in the academy, so to speak, a little bit too highbrow, and that he wanted he wanted cats to go and sort of you know experience something more along the lines of visceral anguish blues and and mix amongst the people. Now again, there's not. The club scene is so far removed from what it once was, even before you were on the scene. Um, but when you were at um, UCLA, um, I mean, did you make it a point to go and play with... I mean, can you just talk about your view of music and and whether you put yourself into folk settings and, and, play, and, and like how you basically put yourself out? I think that's what we're kind of talking about here is get out of your comfort zone, push yourself out of your comfort zone and, and, and just make whatever setting it is good. You know, uh, you get labeled, Oh, he's a, he's a jazz head, you know, but actually it's just all music. So, I mean, can you talk about a a specific time of when you, you know, sort of were like, I have no idea. I don't, you know, maybe even you fell apart, but at the same time, you look back in hindsight and recognize that it was an incredible learning experience because you pushed yourself out of your comfort zone. Totally. Absolutely, Jake. Um, you know, actually, I've been talking about this very kind of idea, this very concept with um, two friends of mine who I'm in a band with, um, Caleb Curtis, who's a saxophone player here, and Vinny Sparaza, who's a drummer out here. Mm. And um, we've been talking about, uh, you know, I'm feeling like I'm more interested in mistakes and like quote bad music <laughs> than um, yeah man then put then putting on a cd and being like oh wow like these dudes are burning and like it's perfect it's, it's perfect solid. yeah there's no, you know, no imperfection is edit. perfection yeah totally and i i'd rather like hear the mistakes and like the attitude i mean you know ornette coleman showed up to new york with a plastic saxophone <laughs> you're talking about guys with rubber bands on their horns and yeah you know you listen to Charlie Rouse play with Monk and it's like he's he's damn near a half step off out of tune from the piano and it just sounds great it's <laughs> dude perfect. it's perfect man in my own recording and composition uh, compositional path to um, you know document some work and embrace the mistakes a little more than I have in the past <laughs> but uh, well don't you think also like even in, in, in you know like regardless of whether this is like something that it's kind of a new thing it's like i somehow i feel that that mistakes are there's no mistakes that that in some ways mistakes are gateways to i'm always looking for vocabulary expansion you know i mean to me um it's very humbling when you look back at the trajectory of modern music recording in this country to know that there were 300 record labels and then in 1980, the six major companies bought all the labels, and then sequencers came in, and then all of a sudden it was uh, drum machines, and Harvey Mason's programming his own drum machine. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Like, why? Everyone just right. wanted, they're like, yo, just play straight. I remember Mike Clark telling me, he's like, 
the producer was like, yo, just play straight beats, man. Just don't play yourself. Just play straight beats. So, like, all of a sudden, it became, like, quantized, mechanized, just play what the last pop FM hit was. And I just feel like there's a reason why um, it's, it also speaks to other societal things. But um, I just feel like, you know, mistakes are gateways to new musical vocabulary, whether people know it or not. I mean, I remember Swallow telling me that, uh, I mean, he went in to see Ornette early on at the half note and was just distraught, you know, like really left like very not happy. And then, and then like over time, he's like, oh, this is so genius, you know, like it took a minute. But again, do you think that as somebody who, I mean, it says (laughs) part-time faculty at the new school, you work with, you work with cats, uh, uh, outreach program, jazz at Lincoln Center, jazz for young people. I mean, this is all like right in my wheelhouse. But can you talk as frankly as you can about if there are crises as it relates to a couple things, um, like a supply and demand issue where uh, you know you have cats. I mean, I just remember Ernie Watts again talking about going to the Schillinger House, which was Berkeley before it was Berkeley, and like um, Charlie Mariano would would come off the road as an already established professional okay he was already working but either the road was eating him alive or he wanted to learn a new instrument so he'd go to berkeley um or schillinger house so now the academy Mm. is bringing in cats who are there's no guarantee on the other side that there's going to be professional viability with a music education degree especially if you want to be a live performer so can you talk about the things that really, setting aside the, the coronavirus, which has obviously stunted everything, in your mind, what are the most important sort of Rubicons that we need to cross? It, you know, or is it is it a lack of venues? Is it the, the significance of music that's changed? Like, obviously, Steve Miller and Journey, they're going to get millions of dollars. But what about the cats that are trying to create new music? And they are they going to have to play for the door? Has music, has the significance of music changed in our culture? What are the most important things facing younger cats? Because, I mean, that's what I've dedicated my show to, is like the ability to uh, elong, uh, to extend um, the viability of spiritual communal music. It's, It's absolutely essential. I don't need to tell you that. But just being somebody who works with a lot of younger cats, what do you think are the most, I don't want to say crises, but... What are the biggest issues that you see in uh, the viability of musician as a profession today? Ooh, now you're now you're hitting me with the hard one. No, no, yeah, we're just getting started. This is only set one, dude. You know? <laughs> well, first off, I, I want to say I, if that story, what you said about Mike Clark getting told by a producer to just play straight groove or whatever. Yeah, no, so he's that, yeah, the, yeah. It's, Go ahead. If that's true, that producer should have been fired. Dude, no, because nobody, you know, Mike, Mike was, I mean, here's the point is that, you know what? Like, I agree, but it was like, just play what the last FM hit was. They just wanted that, that beat just so they could make another hit. Right. It became obsessed with hits when in fact, everybody knows the hit tunes always come when you're not trying, when you're not trying to make a hit. Anyway, it is true. And it's, and it's kind of shameful, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And, you know, we've lost so many 
of the older, <clears throat> excuse me, the older uh, musicians, um, older masters and creators of music, regardless of genre. We've lost so many of them. Uh, we're really kind of at the end, especially in jazz, of like the just a few left of the original absolutely masters of this music. So I think it's really important for everybody to not write off musicians just because of their age or their technical or physical ability, whatever that may be, um, because. I am willing to listen and learn from any 80-year-old musician in any mm-hmm. any genre because there is something to learn from somebody who's lived 80 years of being a musician. Absolutely, um, dude. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough situation we're in for all artists, but especially for music because much like in a similar way to how science and knowledge seem to have become devalued in America and in the world much, um, you know, I, I think that music has really become devalued, a commodity that I, I believe that everybody should have access to all fantastic art, all, all beautiful art, but there's something that it's lost its value and its meaning uh, and its impact on society, and I feel like art should art originally was leading society and now it feels like art is following society um i can't necessarily place blame on streaming platforms for instance because i i think that of course like spotify robs musicians we all know that but uh musicians and artists are inability and the industry's inability to rise above that is is troublesome and I, I'm not trying to place blame on the artists either but uh, I wish I'm going to move on from that I'm, I'm no I want to I, I want to <laughs> actually know this is the point is that um Charlie Persip, who I interviewed, rest in peace. I mean, he, you know, I interviewed him 10 yeah. years ago and <clears throat> when I first started my show and he said, man, we used to get so pissed off because they'd say, you know, oh, you play music, play. He's like, we ain't playing, man. And the point is that when you say play, it connotates, oh, it must be fun. It must be a musician's gift to the world. Therefore, also, as we've been talking about, the unquantifiable nature of music makes it, uh, you can't put data behind it. So therefore, in this data-driven time, people say, well, if it's unqu- if we can't measure it with data, it must not be worth anything. So you can play for the door or you can pay to play. And that is awful. Now, also, I don't want to be naive here. Um, <clears throat> there's no doubt that um, at a certain period of time, the music became a threat to societal order i mean at the at the Absolutely. you know and so that's a cry they want it to be they want music for pacification now they don't want it to burn they don't want people to feel and that's why I, you know i mean i hear i see this here uh uh bassist noah garabedian leads a six piece through his funky uh, on the new brooklyn jazz underground release now underground is fine they don't i mean that you can be an underground burning spiritual musician but they don't want that 
at the at the at the surface level they don't want people to feel that's the bottom line mm, yeah i hear that there's definitely been a pacification of yes. art and of society in general um i think it comes from both ends i think a lot of that has to do with the top the people running this country running the world you know they have completely uh sort of absolutely What's, what's the word? I don't know. Well, no, you know what <laughs> it is? Dude, let me just put it like this. I mean, power. Michael Shreve, who's, you know, Santana's original drummer, he's a dear friend. We've done a bunch of interviews. Dude, Pacific Gas and Oil put out the greatest record series in the early 70s. They did winds, wind instruments, brass, percussion. These are the headiest albums. I'll send you the links to that. They're just, they're so wow. freaking awesome. Like, they incorporate funk drumming, and then there's this whole side with Denny Zeitlin, and then there's this all, this one with wow. Francisco Aguabea. And the point is, it was sponsored by an oil company, okay? <laughs> like, the point is that the recognition of the genius and the recognition that these people are working, that they're really legitimate, that it's real work. You know, all these cats that, that live in this bubble... Um, they certainly do not want people to think for themselves. And I just think that they, at the core, spiritual music, no matter what genre, uh, not only is healing, but it also, for the patrons, I mean, Art Blakey used to say, he's like, my job is to wash away the dust of everyday life for all the cats that come in after a long day of work. And so, you know, it's, it's got, we, there's a lot of factors. I mean, the middle class used to drive a lot of jazz music. Um, there is no middle class anymore. Um, you know, and we're talking about people that would work in the, in the mill, in the, in the, in the factories and the mills. I mean, very bucolic, hardcore jobs. They could come, they could appreciate the blues. Something could be said as well for the fact that the music became incredibly esoteric. And as Alan Schwartzberg told me, <clears throat> jazz music became an inside joke for jazz musicians. So there's a whole like, this whole confluence of things, but the powers that be have consolidated, that's the word, they've consolidated all of the power, and you don't have a chance to have any kind of longevity, you get one chance, you get a one-hit wonder, I'm talking at the pop level, and it, there's just such a lack of authenticity as well, I mean, you talk about Charlie Rouse and, you know, <clears throat> all these other cats, I mean, you, you listen to those records, they might flub a note or something, but you couldn't say it wasn't authentic. And now today you listen to music, not necessarily uh, melodic improvisation, but you listen to music and those cats that are playing the music or singing, they couldn't even go on tour. They can't even play music, actually. It's all right. it, it's all fixed by technology. You know, it's like that's that's you went, that's brainwashing, you know. So it's 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 like to me, I mean, you're like in this amazing that's why i came in with that intro because it, i'm not like blowing smoke like i don't i i am amazed like it's it's beautiful to find someone like yourself who has a chance to do your part to make people feel like they can be themselves on the bandstand you know how you turn that into a living i don't know right well uh you know i i definitely i don't want to come off as uh somebody who hates contemporary music i listen to a ton of pop music and a ton of all types of music from all 
centuries, <laughs> but and all over the globe. But, uh, <laughs> That's great. No, I love that. Yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> there, there is something about a lot of contemporary music where um, it's I, I think that it's being created to not make you think or feel, not make the listener think or feel anything. Uh, and you know not to disrupt their comfort zone in a sense and I think that a lot of what makes the greatest music so great is that it made people feel a certain way it made you think about your life think about your society your culture maybe reevaluate your society and your culture and you know think a little more than just like this song makes me feel cool it's like well you know did james brown's james brown music when you listen to james brown's music okay it might make you feel cool but what is he talking about and also like that groove like that groove was born out of more than just clyde stubblefield it was born out of struggle anger pride joy love sadness you know so I, I would like to see, again, like what I was saying about uh, what I try to get my um, younger students and all developing musicians to do, I, I'd like to see people create music that evokes more feelings from the listener or evokes uncomfortableness, uncomfortability mm-hmm. from the listener. That's right. The music, the music is not intended... The, the, the music, it, I mean, it's like a meditation. Like some people talk, I don't really do a lot of sedentary meditation. I'm more like throwing on early 70s Cal Jader records and playing my conga drum. That's meditation for me. But, you know, for people that are like, <laughs> like, like, like some people say that like meditation, you know, if, if your meditation has angst and discomfort, that doesn't mean it's bad. It means you just have to sit with that uncomfortability and actually look in the mirror and also, mm. like, learn to push yourself out of your comfort zone. I'm not a musician. I just, I mean, I listen back to my interviews from when I started, and I'm like, you know, like, so squeamish, and I, I don't have my voice, but then, you know, it's like Richard Davis, Jack DeJanet, all these guys, like, you know, they let me stumble through, and they helped me find my voice. And it was like the, yeah. the recognition of the elders, the appreciation for all music, and I also think that, like, the visceral understanding of, like, you know, feeling. Like, you have to feel. And let's face it. I mean, my daughters and younger generations, I mean, they're more intimate with uh, technology than they are with maybe other human beings. And that's another issue. Like, I mean, tech, I mean, people, if you can't detect... Um, you know, you've had digital beats crunched into your ears for the last 20 years. If you can't detect authentic rhythm, that's the, I mean, when I interviewed Bill Cosby before the world caved in on him, we did two separate interviews about his involvement in music. And, you know, he's talking about uh, putting up, put, he would have people put a blindfold on him and then they'd put on Blue Note Records and he could tell who, if it was Pete LaRocca or Mickey Roker or Tony Williams or that, you know, it's like everybody had their own individual sound. And that's the thing is like, maybe that's really what I've been trying to ask you for the last hour is that, especially as it relates to this, this American art form known as jazz, I listened to, uh, I listened to, to jazz today and it's, 
I hear a homogenization of sound. And so I wonder how you, how you went about developing your own sound. I mean, you beg, borrow, and steal from your idols and peers, and then you find, and then you have your own voice. And and just can you take us through how you got to that point, or and how you continue on that journey? Well, first off, I completely agree with you, Jake. I, I do hear and I am seeing a homogenization of the sound, and as well as the culture around, you know, as, as you said, jazz, um, or yeah, around jazz. And, uh, I think that because jazz is becoming something that only certain people might have access to, uh, because it's not in public school systems, it's not in communities, lower income communities, mostly communities of color anymore. Um, it's becoming something that only people who have access to music programs and an instrument and after school lessons, and then going on to pay full tuition at, you know, uh, a conservatory exactly. somewhere. Yep. Exactly. That's what's happening. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's finding one's voice in any art form. I, I cannot, I have no idea how to do that. I'm still trying to find my right, own voice. Right. But, um, you know, not, not being afraid to sound bad is so important. Like what you're saying about how you were stumbling around trying to find your own voice. And it's, uh, it's scary being an artist. It's scary playing with other musicians. It's scary having people listen to you and watch you, but that's how you, that's how you get better. <laughs> and that's true, and, man. I mean, and, and you know, what's so cool. You're making a great point because you're right. These, these icons who, who are, there's only like Roy Haynes. There's, there's some left, but they're all getting up there in age. Jimmy Cobb rest in peace you passed away you know that oh no oh, that's right oh, yeah no I, whatever jimmy cobb was there the, but you know like um you know like tom coster who was in santana like he was a jazz head like he 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 was playing the organ organo at a strip club in san francisco with the montgomery brothers and then he'd be playing wow. like this like dawn session in oakland he he remembers like like uh one day showing up he was playing the b3 and He's playing well. You needn't, and he looks up, and Thelonious is sitting right in front of him. You know, it's like, like that yeah. is pet. You know, but that that will grow hair on your chest. On the, you know, like you will, you know, walk out of there. It's just, it, you know, at the end of the day, um, I just want to believe that, you know, we've we've become so. Uh, <laughs> that's what Persip said too. Rest in peace. He said, we've become. We have no culture. We become one big civilization. And when that happens, mm. you lose, like, you know, those ethnic folkways records that you probably love and, you know, Explorer oh, yeah. series records. Like, you know, you listen back, like, that's culture. That's unique rhythm, sound, voice. And yeah. and now it's like, if you, so if you scratch the culture and we become this homogenized civilization, then you get a very sterile singular not singular but just uh basic sound across the board and that was my question is that um how how did you learn to hear music 
Um, did you learn to play music by ear before you learned to sight read? Uh, no, I, I started playing piano and then I went to lecture bass. So I could read actually pretty good because I was playing classical piano. Um, so I can read treble and bass class pretty well. Um, but then, so my thing was kind of, I had to learn how to hear because I was not coming out of a tradition, uh, you know, where I learned by ear. I didn't play in church, for instance, growing up. So, uh, you know, but fortunately being around older musicians and having them be like, Oh no, you can't look at that real book. Like you can't, I love it. You can't, I that. love that. Dude, <laughs> you know, that like, is, dude, that is so important, man. Can you, who, who said that to yeah. you? Just like, just like Fisher or those cats. Like who, who said, do not look at the book. Cause that's Gary Bartz told me, he goes, younger cats, their ears are locked because they have learned, yeah. they have learned to read. I mean, they've learned to read music before they learn to hear it. And they don't have, the apprenticeship that once existed where someone like Art Blakey would be saying, get, t- take the fucking book off the, you know, throw the book away. Yeah. Actually, I remember, uh, there was a drummer named Eddie Marshall. I don't know. Who Dude, are you freaking kidding? He's my favorite drummer okay. of all. Yeah. Dude, d- by the way, I just want to tell you, he's my favorite drummer of all time. Okay. Oh, okay. and the, do you, are you hip to the, to the, to the record, the fourth way that band? No, I'm not. Actually. Oh my god! I'm gonna say, dude, the fourth way was before Weather Report. Every David Garibaldi, they were the first band, and it was Michael White on on fiddle, violin, Mike Knock on on Fender Rhodes piano, Ron McClure on electric and upright, Eddie Marshall on drums. Eddie Marshall was able to keep time on the entire kit. He was the big painting on the thing. It, it's the it's oh, the yeah. nastiest. Um, Fusion, it's like it's like the first. I don't want to say first fusion music, but it was the. They were a precursor. Anyway, I'm, I'll send you some of that. Their tracks, wow. it's freaking nasty. Please send me a, a link to that. I, I will. No, Eddie Marshall is. Oh, he's been a spirit on this journey along with Dewey Redmond and Wes Montgomery and all these freaking cats. But Eddie and Bobby Hutcherson, they used to play a lot together. Oh yeah. Man, I'm a huge uh, Ron McClure fan also. <laughs> dude, Ron, um, dude, Ron McClure I, has the, I mean, his work with Blood, Sweat, and Tears after David Clayton Thomas, it's, and it, Larry Willis, the early 70s, the funkiest bass I've ever, I mean, I, I love, I'm obsessed with him. I, he, he, yeah, no, dude, the sickest band, the fourth yeah. way. I'll, <laughs> I'll send you that stuff. But Eddie Marshall is a perfect example of somebody who's like, he doesn't play by the book. There is no book. Right. Yeah, I, well, so I have a pretty distinct memory of being, um, uh, I, it must have been at the uh, the jazz school in downtown Berkeley, and I was probably in like the, I think I was in like the top, like middle school combo or something, you know, so I thought I was hot shit, and, <laughs> you know, Eddie, Eddie's playing drums, and, you know, we're calling tunes, and I was, I didn't know anything about jazz. Mm. I, I was probably just starting out on double bass, taking a couple lessons from Rob. And, uh, you know, he wanted to play a tune, and I I didn't know it, so I, like, reached for my real book in the backpack. And he's like, no, no, no. Here, he's like, here's how it goes. Oh, uh, I I'll love play. it, dude. <laughs> I love it. And he sits, yeah, he sat at the piano <laughs> and played it. And, of course, I had no ears also, so I was like... Uh, you know, looking at his left hand the whole time. He's playing chords in root position so I can follow the bass. And, uh, you know, I sounded terrible, and that's uh, 
That was the story. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the story I was looking for. The whole, this whole, that was the most yeah. beautiful story. Because at that point, you walked out of there and said, "I don't know, I don't know anything." But yet, I'm, I'm so inspired to try to push myself. Last like 15 minutes, and I kind of want to mention it. I, I'm not sure which question exactly it relates to, but I think that it's related to our conversation. Of course, yeah. Um, an, an album that has a that had a huge impact on me actually was a John Lee Hooker album um, right. called "That's My Story." Oh, and who's on uh, that? Who's on it? Well, so it's a Riverside record from 1960, and it's Whoa. John Lee Hooker with Sam Jones and Lewis Hayes. Yes, dude. And I know, because I interviewed Lewis, and we talked about that album. That is the sickest album, dude. It's great. And it's like, so I remember discovering it, and, you know, uh, 10 years ago, probably, or right. longer than right. 12 years ago. I don't know. And, and I listened to it. I'm like, all right, like, this sounds pretty boring, and like I imagine Sam Jones. Man, is it Lewis Hayes or Connie Kay? I'm gonna look no, 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 it's now. no, it's Lewis. We talked. No, Lou, I'll send you okay. that interview. We talked about that whole album. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I'm thinking I'm like, are these guys having fun? You know, this, <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking about like Sam Jones just getting off a gig with I don't know Cedar Wall. Right. 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 And then right, having to right. play like. You know, half the tunes on the record, they're not even like 12-bar blues. They're just kind of like uh, jam and D while, while John Lee Hooker is like telling a story, you know? And uh, but then the more, you know, I grew into it, the more I listened, I'm like, this is heavy. Like, first off, it's a Riverside album. So who knows how Orrin, I guess, Orrin Keatonews or whoever got these cats on the gig is like John Lee Hooker would, had to cut an album and had a contract with them and he needed a band and so maybe he put the maybe the producer put the band together or maybe John put the band together I don't know but you know those guys probably went into the studio completely open and humble the same way I want everybody to be when they go into a musical situation ready to learn ready to listen you know and, I mean uh, it's so true I mean also you know, like I mean Kenny Burrell when I interviewed he I mean he 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 said he goes we grew up right alongside the blues and the jazz are right alongside each other. John Lee was always there. Right. I mean, so that's the other part of it. It's pacification, and I also hear classicalization of of jazz, uh, not the blues. I, I the, uh, you know, it's farther away from the blues, and you know, because so many of these guys were living that life. I mean, they might have oh. known the American Songbook, but they were living that. You know, Albert Eiler, Archie Shep, I mean, they were blowing their life. I mean, that's what they were doing. So, like, Absolutely. you know, it's hard to play the blues authentically when, you're, when you've grown up in suburbia or completely uh, well off. Right. I mean, I, you just can't, you can't comp that. I just really, I think that that, is, that Eddie Marshall story is so, first of all, Eddie was playing with, and a lot of people don't even know this, but he was playing with Toshiko Akiyoshi and Ron McClure in Hartford back in the 50s, before he even came out oh, there. Oh, wow. But, I mean, you know, I just feel like so much of, um, I don't know, man. I, I feel like in some ways, um, in my mind, one of the seeds or rebirths of music um, is going to be coming out of this the coronavirus. Uh, I feel like... Yeah. There's people that are, I mean, and I'm talking across the board. The vibration is so low. I went to see my buddy Oliver play um, Great Cat here in Tucson, his quartet, 
I mean, it's it's more just punk rock. Uh, it's great. Um, but um, I was, you know, it wasn't a huge crowd or anything, and we were all socially distanced. But, man, the PTSD is intense, man. Like, this is, we've all been traumatized, whether we know it or not. And the vibration oh, is really sure. low. But I do feel there's an amazingly indigenous, organic opportunity for the Garabedians and the and the McMillans and the Lacrastos to really cook coming out of this thing, man. I, I just feel, I hope that I'm right about that. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm not necessarily, I don't know where I stand on my hopefulness of the financial viability. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously ours, that's going to be but, an issue, yeah. But I'm definitely, I am completely hopeful for the future of art. I think that, um, of music in particular, uh, I, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of great stuff coming in the near future. A lot of fantastic musicians, um, a lot of great composing and honest composing and playing. And, uh, I think, uh, I think people more humanity side of things, um, you know, a little humbled, a little more tolerant, and a little more uh, willing to learn, you know, and I think that'll come out through the music for sure. Well, um, you know, Noah, let's um, let's do set two in the new year, uh, in, you know, sometime in the next couple of months. We got more to do, and um, I got to say, I mean, I am, uh, I wish I could have been at that Hunky Dory gig, man. I would have been dancing till the dawn came home, dude. Oh, it was a blast. Yeah, I, was, uh, I was wearing a, it was Halloween night and I was wearing a giant shark costume. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the point is that ultimately every, my whole goal with my guests is, um, you know, is that, is that you had fun. And I think that that's part of music too. Like it's about having fun and basically taking what you do seriously, but not taking yourself that seriously. Um, and I think that that's the most important thing is uh, is make the music fun. Whether you're playing with masters or skiffle players, find a way to get off and find a way that you know, and you know raise the collective consciousness with the audience. I think that that's those are vital things. And I do feel that our generation and younger uh, hopefully can bring some of that back. So uh, I look forward to doing this again, man. Oh, it was great to hang. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. It was really cool to talk to you. I appreciate uh, I appreciate it. Yo, and dude, great you, conversation. And and you know, if you're, um, yeah, do, check out those books. Especially, I mean, if you can hit anybody in the in the, I'd love to get these books into the university system. Just because I think that what we've just been talking about, it's not me talking. It's it's excerpts from interviews just like this with all these amazing cats. Some of whom have already left but it's essential soul food for younger cats so um it was just it's just an honor to connect with you man so and keep it going i will definitely check out those books and it was great to talk to you jake thanks so much for having me yeah much love no happy holidays man be safe thank you you yeah, too be cool all right bye always invigorating to talk to um truly a authentic musician and a cat who um is inspiring on the bandstand uh, as much as he can in these days. It's pretty remarkable, actually, that in reality, um, you know, a lot of cats have not even had the opportunity to play maybe one, two, three gigs at most this year. 
Um, but we can hope for the future and we can hope for sustainability. And uh, that's all we can hope for. Thanks to Noah Garabedian. And uh, we'll be back full week here on the Jake Feinberg Show as we move through Hanukkah. Hope all is well. Until next time, peace.